You're listening to another sermon podcast presented by Chelsea Presbyterian Church. Located in Chelsea, Alabama, we value community, fellowship, and love for people from all walks of life. For more information, find us online at www.chelseaprez.org or check us out on Facebook. So this is a a point of celebration, uh, as it should be. Church planning is hard. I planted churches. I am a church planner. And here, here's what I know, and I would say this about James. Uh, this is a true statement, and this, 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 this goes with, with all of us here, because y'all are part of this. Uh, somebody once said, without great leaders, nothing gets started. But without great institutions, nothing lasts. And uh, James, uh, I knew James was the leader. I uh, didn't know how he would do in church planning. I have talked him off the ledge a few times. Uh, when you're a church planner, the first thing you do when you get up in the morning is you vomit. Because you, you don't know if there's going to be anybody here. It's like you said, you know, you have this big celebration. I remember this happened to me, you know. Uh, when, when I planted a couple of churches, uh, you, you have everybody, all the well-wishers come, and everybody's disgruntled in every other church, and they're going to come in and fix your church. And, you know, the first week you're all excited, the next week nobody's there. And so there's just a lot of ups and downs. But I did, I did suspect that he, he might have a chance. When, and it's a good thing you had a church planner on the people parcel out the money. He calls me up and said, look, I'm fixing to buy this $2,500 grill. Is that okay? <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking to a guy that builds grills, you know. So, um, anyway, five years. Uh, celebration, you know, I teach people in marriage counseling, you ought to celebrate when I'm talking to young couples. You celebrate everything. Life is hard. If you look at Israel in the Old Testament, God formed his people through seven celebrations a year. He didn't have the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He had seven feasts. And what happens uh, in a feast, in, in a, a celebration like this, is you look back. And so there, there are these milestones. It's true even at the new year. Throughout the year, we have rhythms where we sort of look back and celebrate what uh, God has done. And so you can look back over five years. And yeah, there was a time I came down here one time thinking I might be down here to shut this thing down. Uh, and coming away uh, thinking, James, you you got to get busy. you got to get busy. you you got a little life here. Uh, so, so we look back, but, but we, we're thankful in the present. Look, we celebrate like there is no tomorrow. We gild the lily. We don't apologize for spending money because we are embodying in the flesh, as he talked about in the incarnation, Uh, in the best food and wine uh, that uh, God has done something. And then we look to the future and we dream after five years, what what might this look like in another five years? And we have to continue dreaming. I know, I've been at St. Patrick 25 years. It is not been all roses. There are seasons where you're fallow. There are seasons, looking back, there's probably three years of a, of a period in my life, uh, I couldn't see it, maybe in, in hindsight, that I was just depressed. 
I'd seen a church of 330 people go to like 170 over some issues that I was committed to. And, uh, and I read T.S. Eliot in Courses from the Rock. He says, the church must be forever building, always decaying and always restoring. The church is to always be growing and adapting. So, so I would tell you this, we're at an interesting time in history, as I was thinking about this. Uh, Charles Taylor wrote a book called being so, On Being Secular, and he said, he said this, and this informs all the way I think. In the 16th century, it was impossible to be an atheist. Think about that. Well, you, I mean, if you're a pagan, you believed in some kind of deity, you didn't just make it up in your head. In the 21st century, it's almost impossible to believe in God, to be a theist. Okay? Now, that's not so much true in the Deep South where you're from, but here's what we do have in the Deep South. We have people that have been so broken by the church that they just don't want to hear any more of your platitudes. Uh, also, we're at a place where if you, if you read things, like in, in the year 2000, like 85% uh, of the people thought the church was a positive good in society. I mean, maybe even, uh, like Mark said, the opening of the masses, it just kind of keeps everybody constrained a little bit. In the last couple of years, less than half the people, I mean, they see the church as a positive evil because of a lot of issues and stances that we've taken that we are suddenly on the wrong side of history. I mean, Christendom sort of prevailed uh, in America, and we've just seen that slowly eroded over the last 20 years. But So in the midst of that, what is the reason for hope? I mean, there is, there's the obvious, obvious fact that G.K. Chesterton said, the church has all but gone to the dogs seven times in history. And every time it was the dogs that died. I mean, we, we know the church is going to prevail. But I'm, but I'm talking not just limp along, but thrive. If you look internationally, the church is where there's the, is thriving at the places of greatest persecution. I mean, thriving. Not limping along, but thriving. So anyway, how, how do we do that? How, how do we sort of engage a society that doesn't want to hear our platitudes, don't want to hear revealed propositional truth? Stuff like Jesus is Lord, that men are sinners. How do you get at that? Because that's what I want to talk about today. Because that's what I'm thinking about right now, all the time. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at, uh, uh, I'm going to read the first 14 books, verses. We're really going to only look at the first three and then verses 12 and 14. Okay, so, so hear God's word. This is from Acts chapter 1. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his authority. 
but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, speak to us for just a moment. You would peel back the veil. You would give us eyes to see. We pray that you would show us the depths of your mercy at the cross of Jesus. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk about the way forward for you and your church and the church in America. So, because think about it. Here's what I mean by this. Let me just illustrate uh, what I mean, how the kingdom spread and how it spread in America. So growing up in the 60s, uh, we had like mass evangelism. Y'all remember that? Man, I'd, take my, I'd, I'd go to revival meetings, okay? And uh, Billy Graham was doing his thing and that had been going since probably the 50s, 60s, 70s. And so people would flock to those things and uh, be converted. Matter of fact, I know several people who would tell me they were converted and uh, their life genuinely changed uh, going to a revival meeting. And that just seems sort of normal. I mean, the, the morality in America and Christianity were not much, that much different. When I'm actually converted around 19 or so, my morality does not shift much. Though I was raised fundamentalist Baptist, I didn't drink or smoke or chew or cuss, and I was not chasing women and doing anything immoral. I mean, I was, I was actually more righteous externally than most people. But what I'm saying is when the gospel, there was this Christendom element where the, the, the moral fabric of the country was sort of wrapped up in, in a Christian ethos. Now in the 70s and 80s, we, we, what we would do to, to witness to the kingdom and see the kingdom spread is, is we started doing these different takes on evangelism, okay? But they, they were, again, they, they were, there were propositions, you know, you ask people two questions or give them four spiritual laws as these evangelistic encounters. And then in the 90s, uh, there became this sort of seeker thing where you kind of de-Christianize the church. People are starting to get a little skeptical of anything that looks religion. And so we, we, you de-Christianize everything in the church. And so you just kind of look like Starbucks or whatever the latest coffee house is or whatever, and you pull people in. Now, all of those, all of those methods, we might say, all those strategies to share the gospel and witness to the kingdom had this in common. They assumed people felt some sort of guilt and shame, mostly guilt, okay? 
They assumed people felt guilty, that there was a morality, a fixed morality, and that the Bible was sort of back there. But what happens when the culture no longer believes in God or anything in the Bible? When they have no frame of reference, if you told somebody, if you died tonight, would, would you stand forever? Most people wouldn't say anything because there's no concept of guilt. Shame, maybe. So what do you do? Well, we're going to go back to the, the way they did it in the book of Acts, in the beginning of the church. It's what you're doing. Okay, I'm, I'm going to affirm something that's happening here when he's talking about community. But I'm going to say, you've got to put it on steroids. It is the main thing. And so here's the way forward. Because this is an unpromising group of people, as we're going to see. This is not... Matter of fact, we, we do tests. We, 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 our, our national director will go in with the core group and test them. And sometimes they flunk. Like, they're just so off the rails. There's, they conclude there's no possibility that a church could exist. I mean, a church that actually is together and unified. Well, I'm telling you, if we'd have had tests here, this, we, we might have just kind of flunked this group. Okay, so, so, so what, what does this look like? So what does it look like? What does it look like for the church going forward? Um, in the 21st century. Okay, the first thing, and what we see here, and what really happened, how this thing goes viral, we all kind of see the seeds of it here. In the first two verses, uh, first three verses, there was, there was a radical, there was a real personal healing by the gospel. I mean, the gospel really got in. Not religion. Jesus hated religion. I share that with him, okay? Jesus hated religion. Uh, I almost quit the church one time. I was about 11 years old, at 11, 11 years in, and I thought, man, I hate this stuff. And I realized what I, I didn't hate the church. I hated churchy things. But anyway, a real personal healing by the gospel. So you, you remember, you, if you don't know your Bible, you've got a bunch of people. This is 40 days after the resurrection. And I'm convinced that the disciples aren't even converted when Jesus died, okay? Now, that's my conviction. He's been three years with them. They're kind of slow on the uptake. But, they, but, but a week or two later, they're still cowering in a room. They, none of them, not one man. After they had heard Jesus say he was going to die, he was going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer many things. Not one of them believed it enough to even be curious on their wildest chance that Jesus might be resurrected. It was only the ladies that did that. So anyway, so let, let me read this. Let me, let's read this. So you've got the, these 140 people that are sort of gathering back together. It's been 40 days, and here's what's happening. So Luke's writing this, and he wrote the first book to Theophilus, and now he's writing the second chapter. In the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, when I say 
it takes real personal hearing, healing. Something miraculous happened after these 40 days, after the cru crucifixion. I mean, think of this. Jesus got 20,000 people. Jesus could get a crowd. The disciples saw that, and Jesus kept withdrawing to these 12 guys, okay? He just kept, he just immersed his life in these 12 people. I'm a church planner. I mean, if you do the, the healing thing, I'm like, Jesus, let's get this. We can market this. Jesus met with these people. All of them are enemies at this point. They betrayed him, and he saw them. interesting to me about uh, the disciples is anytime they saw somebody that was broken it was a theological question who sinned here's a guy he's blind from birth who sinned did he, he sin his parents sin are we responsible then after Jesus heals him and they begin to ask well is he from this town they said we don't know we don't even see broken people. And here Jesus is forgiving them, loving them, accepting them. He comes to embraces these, these traitors with lapsed morals, people who have wasted their lives, who have egos and arrivals, disqualified, unqualified. He comes to them, utterly embraces them. Because he's not looking at their record. He's, and he's teaching them in his acceptance, don't look at your record. And what they're finding out in the gospel is that perfection's not the point, except Jesus' perfection. They're looking to look for Jesus and not their own record. They were forgiven at their worst. And, and so they're learning how to be sinful and still loved and how to repent and how to forgive each other. And when they begin to see that really our righteousness is based on what Jesus did and, and that He loved them when their morality was bad. Their theology was awful. Then we have to look at other people and love them the same way. No superiority. We're forgiven and accepted at our worst and we treat others that way. In 40 days, Jesus took these people into a place of utter embrace by the gospel. You know how it is. James knows how it is. Anybody in ministry does. You start going into pity about how bad your congregation is and just how un, unfaithful. They just, and all this pity. And, and, and then you think, well, how bad a leader I am. And Jesus just shows his hands inside and said, yes, they are. Get over it. They're unqualified. You're unqualified. Don't look at your sin. Look at me. Look at what I did. My record of righteousness. Think about what I've done. Trust me to be your righteousness. And you see what I'm saying? As they marinated in that truth, it gave them a new identity. As they marinated in it, it gave them a new identity. It melted them. They realized how utterly loved they were. I mean, how bad were they? And yet Jesus goes to the cross. How loved much they'd be. 
Jesus goes to the cross for them. So that's the first thing. The gospel. Not religion. The gospel. The second one. It created, in this renewal process, a community that feels like family. And we just read that verse. They stayed together and they began to pray together. Now look, every movie you see on Marvel is about family. The logical end of self-love is what? Loneliness. Isolation. The telos of what it means to be human is not freedom. It's to know and be known. It's love. That's the Trinity. For all eternity, God is an engine of love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when He creates these, these creatures, He makes us all with divine, design deficiencies. And we can't even know who we are without other people. So here this group is. So they're 120 strong. The first, 120 strong, the first church. Made up of all these egomaniacal people with all these political differences, pro-Rome, pro-Israel. I mean, in our churches and society today, this one has divided us more than anything in the last few years, hasn't it? Our political affiliation, like we, we can't even talk, like it, it's just vitriol. It's like, I, I look at some of the posts on, on Facebook and I'm like, can a Christian actually say that in that kind of railing, just spouting vitriol to people they don't even know? And here's a group that has every right to be suspicious of each other. We got people on every faction. We got people of lapsed morality. People who can feel morally superior. There's people who are accomplished. Okay? Judas was the most accomplished. Look what happened to him. This is about a record. Jesus, Judas was actually the most promising. But how did this vibrant community life happen? Well, it tells us in the text. So, so they're staying there. So there is this thing called immersion. The most formative thing in any of your life is the family, for good or for ill. Like 90% like of what my kids know, I just taught them at a table. I never had a, had a list. I mean, it was, there was prayer, there was beauty, there was good food, and they learned manners. And we, we didn't ever sit down and have a class on anything. They just learned. I'm, wa I'm watching my kids, and they do a lot of the things we do. Uh, and they, we didn't disciple them. We immersed them. Nothing's more powerful than the family. I'll get my daughter. I got a seven-year-old daughter. You say, how's that possible? You Abraham and Sarah? No. Here's what happened. I found out. If you just hang around, they'll give them to you. They'll even send you a check. Yeah. I got a seven-year-old daughter in my old age. But anyway, one of the funniest things is I had six kids, and I, I'm telling you, I missed a lot. I was in survival mode 90% of the time. Looking back. Looking back. I've just talked to my children. I'm, I'm now... I'm at the point where I'm talking to them about some of the things that happen in our life. It's been really rich and beautiful. Uh, things that I couldn't see. I mean, I'm six kids. I'm just trying to survive. So I've got this one, and I'm very reflective. I can see what's happening. I have nobody else. Okay? And one of the things I it, it was, we'd get up in the morning, and I cook breakfast every morning. I cure bacon, so I've got great bacon and, and, and eggs, fully protein bacon uh, breakfast. And so, so the salt sugar, you know in the South, it's humid. So the salt, it just kind of gets caked up. You don't put rice in it. I don't, I don't believe in that. But uh, anyway, so I just take the salt shaker and I just kind of hit it on the side. Well, years later, it's been three years now. My daughter, she has no idea why she does that. It's the power of immersion. 
power of being immersed. So, so they stayed together. So they're, they're rubbing on each other. They're, they're immersed. And they're, it, unless you're immersed with people, it can't ever look like family. And we see this sort of playing out as a, a corporate prayer. They're praying not just as individuals, but they're praying together. They were united. They're, there's one accord. One accord means consensus. In prayer, they come to this deeper unity. They came to agreement in prayer. They, they came to know each other's, listen to me, they came to not know each other's, just each other's name. You can do that at the bar. Friends was all about that. And he said, you can know somebody's name at the bar, but you cannot know their story. And you cannot know their heart unless you are with them. So that what happens is you begin to love them. And then you begin to pull for them. Then you believe to begin to believe the best, even when people are saying evil things. And it meant that their unity in Jesus was so pervasive, it marginalized even their political convictions. The kingdom was what mattered. And they were deeply united. They began to feel feel like a family. Now let me just say two things. Until you get to the place like that, your church is not going to have impact on a place who does not believe in propositional truth. Because they don't care what you say. They don't care what you say. I mean, who's to say? They live in the imminent frame. They're just making it up as they go. Who's to say anything? Until, until you get to the place where there's that kind of love, where whether it's economic issues, cultural, racial, political issues, and you still love, sometimes all you can do is hold hands and tell stories about Jesus. You're not going to make an impact. This is a group that accepted each other in all of their brokenness. This is the people, they knew all the dirt on each other, and they still love them. And if that happens, two things will happen in any church. It'll be really messy. And it might go viral. You can't keep people away. And so let me, let me just close by saying this. The gospel creates, and this is what we see happening here, and we'll see this all through the book uh, of Acts. The gospel creates communities that tell a better story. Okay? If you want to write something down, you write this down. I want you to think about this because my whole ministry is built on this one thing. That we have to create lots of communities on mission that are telling a better story. I mean, we have a big worship service, but I'm telling you the place that what we're committed to is to saturating our neighborhoods with feasting families that tell a better story and set tables for the lonely. Okay? Notice all Jesus. So here's what happened. Gospel communities that tell a better story. So you go back up into verse uh, the first chapter. 
uh, verse verse. It says, in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the story's not over. The story of Jesus is continuing here with this group. Jesus ascended, but he didn't leave. In fact, the book of Acts shows how he advanced through these broken communities. In fact, everywhere they went, there was a community. A community on mission. And remember this, after, after the, the persecution started, the people of God went out without the apostles. So there was all these leaders that had been immersed in these smaller communities that are beginning to go everywhere telling a better story. The gospel starts as this community right here. They live together. And so their life together, imagine this. Their life together with this group of people must be a mystery to everybody. If you look at the book of Acts, uh, it, they saturated the world and set lavish tables for the lonely. Let me, let, let me tell you why this is so interesting. You know what Jesus got killed more than anything else? Table man. Who's on the guest list? Jesus ate with the wrong people. So everybody has a community. Everybody has a feast. It's the same story. It's a variation of a theme. And then here's Jesus. He's got the tax collector. He's got Mary Magdalene over there. And that's not religious. They're not clean. And Jesus explodes that with his grace. And so, yeah, you know, so that, that's what got Jesus killed. And you know what caused the church to spread? Christians eating with the wrong kind of people. They set tables for the lonely. They invited the misplaced, the displaced, the widows, the orphans, the slaves. In our society, it would be the lonely. Okay, it would be the lonely. They set tables. Uh, imagine in a culture like ours, where everything is based on achievement or birth to see a community that actually loves people that were alienated, that everybody else has alienated. Is that not telling a better story? I mean, here you are. People in this scheme belong before they believe. I mean, how do you convince the world that a dead man hanging on a cross is the final answer? That's absurd. Paul said the foolishness of that message. I'm seeing this all the time now. Let me tell you a story about a friend of mine named Jim. Jim is from Ireland. So, of course, I become friends with him and take him out to lunch. And the first thing he tells me, because his wife is a believer, is that he doesn't even know that Jesus is a real person. Fair? We can talk about that. So we just kind of talk. And then when I in my community group, my community uh, on mission group, uh, he starts coming with his wife and it broke every stereotype of what he thought religion was. There's plenty to drink. A lot of it had been aged. Okay? It was robust. It looked like any other community. In other words, we, we didn't create a church Christianese community. We created a robust community. We wanted to be out anywhere, but if we weren't at church, it was fun. It was laughter. And we serve people, all these special needs kids, every Friday, every Friday night once a month. We're just babysitting them. 
Six months later, where everybody's sort of sharing their testimony, and Jim says, I'm not really a Christian, but I'm a seeker. So it's a six-month thing. So he just sort of belongs to this community. He's hearing the gospel. Nobody's beating him over the head with the Bible. Then seven months later, he called me and said, when can I be baptized? So, so what happened was every the, the life of a community was telling a better story that broke down all of his stereotypes so that he began finally to earnestly look for the truth. The truth will set you free. I was talking to a guy yesterday. I uh, just met this guy. And we, we were telling stories like this. And he's a chaplain for Memphis has a soccer team. I have no idea what they're called. I'm not interested in that sort of thing. But we've got one. And uh, he's so his goalie, the goalie, he's a chaplain. The goalie calls him and he said, look, I need to meet with you. So they meet. He said, what, what's up? He's, he's an atheist. He said, look, I'm meeting with you because my wife is getting a little too interested in this Christianity thing, and I just want to know what she believes. I really can't talk to her about it. I don't want you to try to convert me. I just want you to talk to me about it and tell me what it's about. This goes on with, with, with just a conversation, just immersion, two people loving each other, no judgment, till he finally asked him, he said, do you mind if I just share with you the way I pray for you? Okay, that's fair enough. And slowly, he began to see the gospel was true. You want to see more lives changed, don't we? Isn't that what we live for? To see the lights come on and people know Jesus and know the truth that sets them free? You have the right model. When James said, and what we say in my church is this, if you're not in a community group, as we call them, they're the community's own mission. Communities that feel like family. They go out and do mission. They eat, they feast and drink, and, and they do mission together. We tell them, you're not in the church. You're not in the church. That's how important this is. We tell them that to, we, what we are trying to do is saturate this area with gospel communities that tell a better story by setting tables for the lonely. Now, I read the New York Times most every day. Uh, I don't agree with most of what I read. I just want to keep my pulse on what the culture is thinking. Because you're sort of isolated in the South. And you know what? There's an article, and it's an epidemic. It, it is the epidemic over today. It, it, it's loneliness. If, if you've been told all your life the center of the universe is self-love, the outcome, as I said, is loneliness. But what if all of a sudden you heard that all your life and you are that lonely person? Or you're just part of a nuclear family and you don't have anybody else. I mean, that's hard. The wheels are falling off. You've got three kids. You don't know anybody. You don't believe anything. But what if you come to a place where you see that you're taught the center of the universe it's not self-love, but self-giving love. That might tell a better story. Let me close here. Uh, you, you remember in the Lord of the Rings? Um, uh, they're at the end of the ring, and uh, Frodo gives Sam this book. And so he kind of gives it back to him. And... Uh, he said, no, 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 no. I'm giving this to you, Sam. And so Sam looks at it. And so he, he's written this whole chronicle of what we know of 
as the Lord of the Rings. And there are a bunch of blank pages and he says, these are for you. That's where you are. What will those pages say? I challenge you. Be in earnest about making communities like families and, and you will be surprised what happens. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, all your goodness, all your love for us. Would you not now come and continue to be with us? And if we can't believe the words that you that are spoken, uh, may we taste and see the gospel in bread and wine. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. We want to remind our listeners that our doors are always open at Chelsea Presbyterian Church, and we invite all our listeners to join us for worship. You can visit us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at Chelsea Middle School. To hear more of our sermons from our church or for more information, you can find us online at www.chelseapres.org or check us out on Facebook.